Hey friends. Uh, I am Scott. Let's just dive in. Yeah. I trust, you know, uh, the topic for tonight. I think the title that Clark gave was when do you know it's God's spirit and something discerning unusual manifestations. There you go. Okay. So I'm curious, uh, if that's what you brought you or it's just, it's a Friday night and you always come to the Brie. Uh, I'll start with some stories to give context for myself. Um, I was 17, a uh, grade 12 student uh, living on the mainland, Christmas break. Um, I'd spent the previous summer working at a summer camp, a Christian summer camp in Washington State, Camp Furwood. Any history? There you go. Um, and over this Christmas break, a group of friends and I who'd served together at this camp went to Phoenix, Arizona to meet up with other friends that we'd served with, but particularly to spend some time with a family whose son had served with us that summer and had died in a car accident, and we had forged a deep connection. And, uh, and during that time, we joined with their church and their youth group and the young adult group and traveled with them on an annual short missions trip that they would go on uh, to a border town of uh, in Mexico uh, that had an orphanage that they had a long-term relationship with. And one afternoon after one of our friends had shared a, a the gospel on a street corner to an impromptu gathering, uh, they invited people to, to respond to the gospel and receive prayer. And um, and people responded. And a friend and I, you know, we're young 17-year-olds and young Christians and encouraged to participate. So we stepped forward to pray with these folks. Uh, I didn't speak any Spanish. Um, this woman came to us. She poured out her heart uh, to God in Spanish. And then we went to pray for her. We placed hands on her shoulders and prayed for her. And in that moment, she collapsed to the ground. I'd never encountered something like this. Uh, it was uh, jarring to me. Her sister thought she was having a heart attack and started explaining this. But our friends uh, who spoke Spanish explained, no, God is doing something here and assured her she didn't need to be afraid. And we prayed for this woman. And uh, after a few minutes, she uh, awoke from that experience with this deep sense of peace and through translation, thanked us for ushering her into the presence of God in prayer. I had no grid for this. Uh, not long after, back in Canada, uh, some Christian friends and I decided to attend a Friday night um, worship service at a local charismatic church. There was something about the wholehearted passion of the worship that drew us, but also there were things that we couldn't make sense of, things that seemed odd and even concerning at times. Week after week, I'd watch this crowd of very hurting and broken teenagers and young adults, mostly who lived on the streets of the neighborhood, come in, go to the front, and during worship be prayed for, and often have these very dramatic experiences that everyone in the room would observe. Floods of emotion, um, crying, shaking for the duration of the night until they'd slip out of the into the night, and then a week later, it would happen again. I had no grid for this. I had learned the Christian faith as something you believe, uh, something you study, something you hold to, but as a, an experience like that, I didn't know what to do with it. Now, one more story. Not long ago, uh, over lunch, someone in my church here in Victoria shared a story 
from years before. Um, he'd been in his 20s. He had was a thoughtful young Christian man at the time, studying at Regent College, where Clark and I met. And one night he sat in the back of a charismatic conference somewhere in Vancouver, very skeptical, but also very curious. The speaker began sharing that God had impressed upon him that he was to, quote, impart a window of heaven to the people. And then he began to walk around the room and simply touch people and say, receive Jesus to each person he passed. He did this. And my friend sat there, curious, skeptical, until this man came to him, placed his hand on his shoulder and said, receive Jesus. And in that moment, my skeptical, thoughtful, graduate-studying friend experienced all the strength in his body drain from him and collapse to the ground and experienced the most overwhelming wave of God's love and joy. He could not get off the ground for a long while, but when he did, all he wanted to do was worship. His heart and his mind were aflame with the beauty and the loveliness of God. What do we make what are we to make of these kind of stories? What do you make of these kind of stories? If you heard of a church in Victoria that all of a sudden starts erupting with these kind of experiences, does something in you say, I have no interest in that, it's craziness? Or does something in you say, oh man, let's find the way to get there? That's an interesting question that I hope tonight's lecture will press you on. Maybe both sides of that. How are we to discern the true authentic work of the spirit when weird things are happening? How are we to know if it is in fact God's spirit? A few years ago, I taught a series at my church here in Victoria on the person, passions, and work of the Holy Spirit with a particular emphasis on the everyday ordinary experience of the spirit, how the spirit leads us to Jesus how the Spirit ministers to us the, the, the heart, the, the teaching the, of Jesus, how the Spirit seeks to form us into the likeness of Jesus, how the Spirit inspires us in prayer, leads us in prayer, prays for us when we don't know what to pray for, how the Spirit speaks to us through Scripture and opens us up to receive God's revelation. And I did this because too often, we have associated the presence and power of the Holy Spirit only with the wild, the unusual, the dramatic. So much so that many Christians struggle to recognize the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Some Christians, maybe some of us, have underneath, maybe we haven't named it, maybe we can, an anxiety about the Holy Spirit and experiencing the Spirit. If someone said, can I pray for you to experience the Spirit? Some of us would say, yes. And some of us would say, well, I don't know if I want that. Pray for faith, we'd say, maybe. But the reality is the whole of the Christian life is experienced and lived by the Spirit. Um, during dinner, someone, David, made, mentioned the word uh, experiential faith, which is, in truth, I don't think there's any sort of there is no Christian life that is not experiential in the sense that we would not know Jesus if not for the ministry and presence of the Holy Spirit. We would not trust the Father's heart if not for the ministry and presence of the Holy Spirit. We would not live in hope in the gospel if not for the Holy Spirit's gracious presence ministry. If 
often I sat with friends who said, I don't, I don't think I've ever experienced a spirit. And I'll ask them, have you ever, have you ever felt God speaking to you through a sermon? You have heard that you have experienced the spirit. Have you ever felt the God, the father's heart for you? Have you ever known God's acceptance? That is all by the spirit. There's no Christian life apart from the ministry and presence of the spirit. So for me as a pastor, that's always my heartbeat. My passion is to help my people, uh, understand, celebrate, trust the ordinary everyday presence of the spirit. But tonight, that's not what we're about. Tonight, I want to venture into the uh, beyond the ordinary to the less ordinary, the uncommon, the unusual experiences that happen at times, particularly in the midst of renewal or revival or are claimed to happen. And specifically, I want to explore how to discern that it is in fact the work of the spirit or not. And I know as I say this, I'm delving into Territory that is both confusing and consequently divisive. But that's why we need to talk about it. What do we think when we hear or see or hear a story of someone shaking in worship or falling when prayed for, or crying out, or maybe laughing uncontrollably in the midst of prayer or ministry? How are we to know if God is really at work in this? I remember a season in church I was a part of. In university and when I was at Regent College, it was a Baptist church, which doesn't tell you much because there's a range of Baptists. I would call it a Karis Baptist church, <laughs> um, where some of these things would happen in our church at times, not often, but here and there, maybe on a Sunday, maybe on a spiritual retreat. And it was confusing and quietly divisive. Some people, when this happened, were over the moon. It's finally happened. They couldn't get enough of it. They were convinced this was the sign that the Spirit had shown up and they wanted it for everyone now. We're not leaving <laughs> until everyone's experiencing this. Others, at the very same time, were terrified and upset, feeling the exact opposite. They were praying to shut it down, praying it out, making sure it never happened again because it was obviously the enemy or at least a significant distraction from what God really wanted to do among us. And then there was the rest of us, the muddled middle, who were simply confused, who were not sure what to think of it, who longed for everything that God wanted to do in us and among us and through us, but did not know. And I would say we were convinced that God could do things that we didn't understand, but weren't sure if this was something God wanted to do. And at the time, I was a young elder in my church, responsible with others for what went on in the name of Jesus in our fellowship. I wish someone had given this lecture <laughs> to me, but I didn't have it. So thankfully I was a regent and uh, studying an era in history that touches on this and that taught me. So that's what I'm bringing tonight. A framework, a grid for discerning the authentic work of the Spirit. And as the next slide shows, uh, this isn't something I've developed. I'm drawing on the wisdom of a man named Jonathan Edwards. Boom. Uh, who looks very boring there. Or at least focused. He was a pastor in the New England states in and around the 1730s, which itself is something worth taking to heart that what we're talking about is not something new. These experiences are not modern phenomena that started happening with the rise of the vineyard or the Toronto Blessing or Bethel or some other more recent charismatic or Pentecostal movement. 
There, these are experiences that have been evident in many seasons in the history of the church. I was listening to a, a lecture by Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, just the other day. You can find loads of old preaching by uh, folks uh, preaching at Westminster Chapel in London, describing the work of God in the Welsh revivals, Same, similar stories. Um, all that to say, this is stuff that others before us have grappled with, and we would be wise to listen and learn from others and not be foolish enough to think that we're the first people who ever have experienced this and grapple with this. History invites us to stand on the shoulders of others and learn from them. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to stand on the shoulders of a giant named Jonathan Edwards and seek to learn from God's wisdom in him. So let me tell you a bit about Jonathan Edwards. Um, Edwards was born in 1703. I, I'm looking at my notes tonight way more than I normally do when I speak, but this is kind of, this is content heavy uh, history in the next stretch. So I hope you feel engaged. I'll try to look up. Um, Edwards was born in 1703, died in 1758. That's what is that? 50, 55 years. Yeah. Raised in Calvinist congregationalism. I'll let Clark give a lecture on that. Jonathan Edwards grew to be one of the most influential American evangelical pastors and theologians in his century. He was a Puritan of the Reformed tradition. Again, I'll let Clark do a lecture on that. Um, more popularized in recent days by the rise of the neo-Calvinists, John Piper and his influence. Lots of people now know and love Jonathan Edwards. Edward's grandfather had been a pastor for 60 years in Northampton, Connecticut, and Edwards started his pastoral ministry as his grandfather's pastoral assistant until he assumed leadership and became the lead minister of the church. He's famous for having preached the widely publicized sermon, Sinners in the Hands, in the Hands of an Angry God, which is a very unfortunate thing that that's the way he's popular because his vision of God is actually so beautiful. And if that's the only thing you know about Edwards, you really don't know Edwards or the Puritans or the Reformed tradition. I hope that comes out a bit tonight. Um, and significant for our purposes, during his ministry, Jonathan Edwards witnessed, pastored, and participated in two significant seasons of revival. The first occurring in 1734 to 36, so two years, known as the Connecticut Valley Revival, and the second occurring in 1740 uh, to, to 43, which we know as the Great Awakening. So first, the Connecticut Valley Revival. Um, well, I jumped myself, did I? It's my fault. I'm so not used to using a clicker. <laughs> so old school and yet not. 1734. Anyone remember? No. <laughs> A wave of revival began as the Spirit of God caused a number of surprising conversions in a town nearby Edwards' community of Northampton. As Edwards himself, himself accounted, and then it was, this is in his journal, in the actually this is in a letter he wrote to a series of, of, of pastoral leaders in England who were inquiring what was happening. He says, and then it was in the latter part of December that the Spirit of God began extraordinarily to set in and wonderfully to work among us. And what ensued were many sudden and dramatic conversions. And the testimony of these only served to awaken many more. Literally the whole town 
was spiritually stirred or awakened. Not a family was unaffected. And there were, was a general atmosphere of spiritual hunger and witness. It is said that people were so caught up in spiritual things, I love this, that they had to discipline themselves to attend to the basic matters of life, like making dinner for your kids or going to work. There was much evidence of the Spirit's work, widespread joy, love, repentance, uh, loving relationships, reconciliation, authentic emotions, powerful times of worship, much testimony of God's work and goodness, hunger for the word of God. At one point, Edward stated, stated that the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. Visitors and inquirers would come through town and leave impacted, convicted, or converted themselves. And as they left, the Spirit's work followed them and spread to the towns where they traveled, which is interesting. We hear these stories today. I just listening to a lecture by Ellie Mumford, also the, known as the mother of the lead singer of Mumford and Sons. Her and her husband were the lead pastors of uh, the London Vineyard Church, and they came over to the Toronto Blessing, came back um, to England, and, and what was happening in Toronto started happening in churches in England. Very interesting. Um, within the span of six months, 300 people in the county of Northampton, equal parts men and women, came to a living faith in Jesus. Two to three people a day, about 30 a week. Young, old, rich, poor, wise, unwise, all classes. And this wasn't just professing Christians who were renewed. This was also unbelieving people who now, deeply with their whole being, believed and worshipped Jesus. And let it be said, prior to this, and this was fascinating for me to discover, prior to this, Edwards was very clear that the atmosphere of his region was just the opposite. This was not a deeply religious town. He writes in the preface to this account, he says, There has been a great and just complaint for many years among the ministers and churches in this region that the work of conversion goes on very slowly that the Spirit of God in his saving influences is much withdrawn, and there are few who receive the report of the gospel with any imminent success upon their hearts. So all that to say, this revival was truly surprising, extraordinary, from 1734, not just for two weeks, but for two years, to 36. And then it calms, and life goes on. And four years later, historians refer to the emergence of the Great Awakening. In the spring and the fall of 1740, jumping. Good, okay, maybe. In the spring and fall of 1740, sparked by the itiner itinerant ministry of George Whitfield. Am I talking too fast? I'm trying to cover my material. Okay, good, okay. Clear, my diction's good? Yeah? Okay, good. <laughs> Um, sparked by the itinerant ministry of George Whitfield, religious interest was aroused in Northampton once again, and particularly this time among the young people, the children, and the youth. Edwards spoke of a particularly powerful night, May 1741, when many young people and children gathered after the service. Many appeared to be overcome with a sense of the greatness and glory of divine things. Imagine you're Imagine this is, we're describing 12-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 8-year-olds. Many appeared to be overcome with a sense of the greatness and the glory of divine things, and with admiration, love, joy, and peace, and compassion to others who looked upon themselves in a state of nature. 
And many others at the same time were overcome with distress about their sinful and miserable estate and condition. So the whole room was full of nothing but outcries, faintings, and the like. This powerful move of God, although with its own ebb and flow, lasted until the fall of 1742. So over two years. In the end, it is thought that this revival served to accomplish the conversion of 30 to 40,000 people in just over two years. As Guy Chevreau, a contemporary writer, says, theirs was the fire of God that spread not only over most of New England, but to Britain and beyond, so much so that even secular historians speak of the Great Awakening. And amidst, oh, yeah, that's good. Amidst the many conversions, one of the characteristics of these revivals and others of its era, particularly in England and Scotland, was unusual phenomena. Edwards wrote of people experiencing powerful effects upon their bodies, tears, trembling, groaning, loud cries, agonies of the body, the failing of bodily strength, so falling, fainting, distress, convulsions, joy, trance-like states that could last for hours, even days. Sarah Edwards, Jonathan Edwards' own wife, uh, one one, uh, speaker on this referred to her having an intimate relationship with the carpet. For 17 days, she could not care for her family. For 17 days, she encountered God in a way that incapacitated her ability to function and afterwards described it as the most overwhelming experience of the nearness of God and my dearness to him. On many occasions, these were described as it was for Sarah Edwards herself, uncontrollable, unrestrainable. They happen during services, they happen after the service and after meetings, lingering into the night, subsequent hours, sometimes during. Uh, for many, it was in the midst of these unusual experiences that they claimed to be inwardly encountering and being affected by God. So how did people respond? The passerbyers, the neighbors, the other ministers in town or across the, the state? How did they respond to this? And what? how did Edwards respond? Well, just like today, there were people on all sides of this. There were those who thought it was all um, uncontrolled emotionalism or the explicit work of the devil. And there were those who thought this was all completely the work of God. And yet, as Edwards sought God through this season of renewal, as he prayed and pastored people Monday through Sunday, he saw reason to be both deeply encouraged and very cautious by both what was being experienced and how it was being assessed. And so he began to seek to articulate a criteria, a biblical criteria for assessing the phenomena and discerning the authentic work of the spirit. Now, let me say for Edwards, uh, his guide in this was inspired scripture. If the spirit has inspired scripture, then we can trust the spirit inspired scripture to be the, the standard for making sense of the work of the spirit. And so Edwards, turn to 1 John chapter 4 as a whole, and this verse itself as a framework, a starting point. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. At the most basic level, we'll get into this, Edward's fundamental conviction, bless you, was uh, that the evidence of the authentic work of the spirit is not in the phenomena themselves, but in the fruit 
of these experiences, the lasting impact on those affected. His question that he passes on to us is not, what did you experience? But how have you been impacted or changed by what you experienced? I've always appreciated how John Wimber, founding pastor of the Vineyard Movement, who really was a historian of revival himself, how he distilled the wisdom of Jonathan Edwards. He said, speaking at Holy Trinity Brompton, London, where the Alpha program comes to us, um, he in when the Toronto blessing happened in 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 Toronto ninety uh, five. That's another story. Um, but like this, as described within the Connecticut revivals, how at times what God was doing or what was experienced would transfer to other places. Many leaders in, in the charismatic movement and others traveled to Toronto during the Toronto blessing and went back to their homes. And so she and other leaders came to Toronto for 48 hours, came back, and then things started happening in England. Things started happening at Holy Trinity Brompton. And, and so they asked uh, Ellie Mumford um, and her husband, John, to come and speak. And a series of them spoke on, on what they thought God was doing. And they invited John Wimber to come. And John gave a talk on Jonathan Edwards and the revivals of the 18th century. So I'm following his footsteps, maybe. And he summed up Edwards' conviction this way. I love it. He says, I don't care if you fall over. I don't care if you fall over and roll across the floor. I don't care if you fall over and roll across, roll down the street to Hyde Park and back. What I care about is if you are more like Jesus when you get up. <laughs> now, I'll be honest. I'm sure many of us, if in the midst of this tonight, someone fell to the floor and rolled across the room during this lecture, we would be a bit startled and probably not just startled, but maybe deeply concerned. <laughs> But I think we can agree with Wimber's concluding statement that ultimately what matters most is not whether or not we fall down or roll or anything like that, but are we becoming more like Jesus? Because that, above all, is the passion and sign of the Holy Spirit's work, whether in stillness and silence and study or through unexpected experience, are we becoming more like Jesus? Is our experience of stillness, study, conversation, is our experience of dramatic emotions in worship leading us to become more like Jesus? And so with this conviction, Edwards develops and proposes his criteria for discernment, which involved two parts. Uh, he proposes nine negative signs and five positive signs. Um, and for the sake of making sense of Edward's thoughts, I'll deal first with the positive science. How are we doing? I just want to ask you a quick question to clarify. Yeah. What do you mean more like Jesus? Mm. <clears throat> Thank you. That's a great question. Um, well, part of being a Christian is becoming more like the character of Jesus, like uh, the qualities of who Jesus is, that they would become part of our life, that we grow the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians, Paul describes us becoming described by the qualities of Jesus, so his character. Like gentleness. Yeah, love, joy, patience, peace, patience, love. kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Being people who trust the Father, as Jesus did. People whose heart is aligned with Jesus in what we desire, but also our capacities to be able to live in that. Um, Jesus is offering us not just hope for heaven, 
but our life to be pulled into a living contact with God that makes us more like Jesus. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. We'll touch on that a little bit as we go to you. These five positive signs are, I think there's gold here. So this is the part I get to get me most excited. Um, uh, he begins, he offers these five signs clearly just seeking to clarify the distinguishing mark of the spirit drawn from first John four. He says, these positive signs are the sure distinguishing scriptural evidences and marks of the work of the spirit by which we may proceed in judging of any operation we find in ourselves or see among a people without danger of being misled. So to hear that, Edwards is convinced that these are undeniable positive affirmations that the spirit is at work, these five positive signs. First, we can know that it is in fact the Holy Spirit at work if the result is a greater esteem for the person of Jesus Christ as a son of God and the savior of the world. This, according to Edwards, is clear evidence of the Spirit's work, as John outlines in his letter. 1 John 4, verse 2 and 3, this is how we can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. 1 John 4, verse 15, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so Edward says, I love the way he says that. He says, clearly, this is something the devil would not do. Right? Our natural constitution does not lean towards Jesus apart from the spirit being at work in us. The enemy of our souls does not seek to lead us to esteem Jesus. Clearly, this is something the devil would not do. He says that each time. Second, we know that the spirit that the spirit of God is at work where the result is that the work of Satan is being thwarted. Sin, temptation, addiction, vice, the, the lure of idolatry, deception. It's being broken in our lives. There's, this is clear evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. 1 John 4, verse 4, you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. 1 John 2, verse 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. What he's saying there is, where the interests of Satan are thwarted in our lives and in our relationships. To quote a hymn some of us know, where the things of this world, the fallen things of this world become strangely dim or dull. They, they lose their shine, their appeal, their pull on our soul. The spirit of God is evidently at work. This again, this is something the devil would not do. Third, we know that it is the spirit of God that is at work when the result is that the individual is led to a greater regard for scripture, for the Bible. This is clear evidence of the work of the spirit. First John four, verse six, we are from God and whoever listens, sorry, whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Again, this is something the devil would not do. <laughs> if the word of God is the means of God's saving action in our lives, if God brings order out of chaos through his word. If God speaks uh, dead things into life, if God declares saving truth to us, the devil would never scream to us the truth and lead us to turn towards 
the Bible as a source of truth. He says, Edward says, every text is a dart to torment the old serpent. Therefore, he is engaged against the Bible and hates every word of it. Fourth. Fourth. A work that results in a greater understanding of sound doctrinal truth, since the spirit is the spirit of truth, is clear evidence of the work of the spirit. This quoted 1 John 4, 6, it says the spirit is the spirit of truth. But also John 8, 44, Jesus says that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. The truth is not in him. Again, this is clearly something the devil would not do. And I would say could not do. He can't lead us to truth. He's a liar. Fifth, lastly, a work that leads to an increased love for God and others is clear evidence of the Spirit of God. 1 John 4, 7, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. 1 John 4, verses 12 and 13, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his Spirit. Let me read you straight from Edwards himself to summarize this piece before we go on to the nine negative signs. Edwards says, therefore, when the spirit that is at work amongst the people tends this way and brings many of them to high and exalted thoughts of the divine being and his glorious perfections and works in them an admiring, delightful sense of the excellency of Jesus Christ, representing him as the chief among 10,000s and altogether lovely. I wonder if the author of that song that we've sung in recent years, all together lovely, that one, all together wonderful to me. Here I am to worship. Might have been reading Jonathan Edwards. Uh, when this, when the spirit causes this, representing him, Jesus, as the chief among 10,000s and altogether lovely and makes him precious to the soul, winning and drawing the heart with those motives and incitements of love to, to love of which the apostle speaks in this passage of scripture we are upon. It must it must, it must be the Spirit of God. And as Edward states, this, the devil would simply not do this, any of these things, nor would our natural constitution, apart from God's work, lead us toward these things. Apart from the Spirit's work, we do not know God, love God, crave his will, his ways, his word. These positive signs are sure evidence, according to Jonathan Edwards, of the work of the Spirit, whatever the means. All right, so <clears throat> the nine negative signs. And by saying that negative signs, Edwards is not saying what we think he's saying. Um, he's not referring to bad signs. He's referring to non-conclusive signs. Signs that give no evidence in and of themselves what the work is or is not. And I'll just give you an analogy, uh, example to, to make this clear. Imagine I was driving downtown on a Friday night, and I see you walking into a well-known dodgy bar. Edwards would call this a negative sign, a non-conclusive sign, because my simple observation of this event would not would give me no actual understanding of the nature of your visit to this dodgy bar. It is possible that you could be going into this bar because you are nurturing a secret addiction that you are hiding and I should be concerned for you. It is also possible that you are neighbors with the owner and for the last five years you've been praying for 
your neighbor, building a friendship, building trust. He's come to your house. You've been to their house. And recently your neighbor has said, I know you're not really a dodgy bar guy, but it's what I poured my life into. I'm trying to make it better, but would you come down? Would you just come down, have a pint with me? And, and because of your friendship and your investment in this person, you said, yes, I am coming down. I will see you there tonight. Or you have just been out for a drive. You're going somewhere else and you really need to pee so badly. And there is only one parking spot and is in front of this dodgy bar. And you jump in and you know they let anyone go in because their bathroom's horrible. They don't care. And so you go in and use the bathroom. And I have driven by you in that moment. My seeing you enter this bar is a negative sign, as Edwards is using it, is a non-conclusive evidence that in itself tells me nothing about the nature of the event. Such an event could be inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, could be inspired by the devil himself, or could just be bodily necessity. Does that make sense? I think it does. Yes. According to Edwards, negative signs don't tell us anything in and of themselves. But he names them. He was very, he felt deeply committed to naming these. Because in his day, there were so many who were outright dismissing the whole of what was happening as the work of the devil and base emotionalism, despite the many undeniable signs of the Spirit's work, that Edwards distills these nine non-conclusive or negative signs as a call to his neighbors and his friends and his pastoral colleagues around the land and across the water in England to use critical, to, to, to embrace critical thinking to calm the quick gut reactions that would often guide them in their assessment of the situation. And I'd love to linger long here, but I'm trying to press in. Okay, so first, Edwards uh, argued that a work that a work is carried out in an unusual, novel, or extraordinary manner is no conclusive evidence. Edwards says, "What we have been used to, or what the Church of God has been used to, is not a rule by which we are to judge. We ought not to limit God where He has not limited Himself." That line, so good. We ought not limit God where he has not limited himself. Just as God has worked in new and surprising ways in the past, could he not likewise now? Consider the loud wind, the tongues of fire in Acts 2, the story of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit came upon the followers of Jesus and the church was born, filled them, became, filled them like a temple, right? Most would have considered this wildly unusual, secondary to God, what God was really after, but to deny the Spirit's hand in Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, would be to deny one of the most significant moments in the history of the world. That a work is carried out in an unusual, novel, or extraordinary manner is no conclusive evidence. Second, <laughs> that a work is, a work is not to be judged by of judged of by any effects on the bodies of men such as tears trembling groans loud outcries agonies of body the failing of bodily strength the influence persons are under is not to be judged of one way or another by such effects on the body i'm quoting him obviously and the reason is because the scripture nowhere gives us any such rule as i've already said edward's conviction was that the phenomena themselves are not an indication of the source edward argues that if it's true that no one can see God and live, would it not make perfect sense?
for an individual to be powerfully affected with just a glimpse of God's pure holiness, God's perfect love, God's judgment, God's justice. To Edwards, it seemed only rational that such a revelation would overcome one's bodily strength. Think of Matthew 14, 26, when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water, they were terrified, cried out with fear. Or the many occurrences in scripture where people encounter an angel or God himself, and they collapse to the ground. Uh, The apostle Paul, at the time he was the Jew, the Saul, fighting against the people of God, not a Christian, encounters the risen Jesus on the road, and he is struck blind. Uh, Sorry, mute. Mute? Blind? Blind. Thank you, friends. (laughs) A work is not to be judged of by any effects on the bodies of men. Just because someone is struck blind doesn't mean we think, oh, obviously God's at hand. Just because it's happening doesn't mean we think it's not. Thirdly, That people are greatly moved, stirred, or loudly excited about something is no evidence that a work is of God or not. The book of Acts is full of stories of excitement. Some excitement against God. Crowds rallying with fervor, excitement against God and what God is doing. At other times, excitement stirred by God that people watch and observe and are confused by. Fourth, uh, those that those affected by the work purport to have experienced powerful impressions on their imagination, visions, trances, or revelations of heaven is no evidence either way. Now, some people would push against this, I bet. Um, Edwards writes, I dare appeal to any man of the greatest powers of mind, whether he is able to fix his thoughts on God, on Christ, on the things of of another world without imaginary ideas attending his meditations. I I can think distinctly, distinctly of a moment. I was um, a young leader in a church in White Rock uh, that was running an alpha program. I was a worship leader more in those days, played and sang, played the guitar and sang, and and I was asked to lead the singing at alpha, which I didn't want to do. I thought, no, uh, worship is something that Christians do, not something that non-Christians sing along to. I was like, this is not worship. I'm not going to do it. But I honored my leaders. They asked me to do it. I did. I led worship for this. We sang together these songs of the church with my friends who didn't know what they thought of Jesus. At the end of this time, uh, our Alpha course, uh, my friend John became a vibrant Christian. He is today, uh, decades later. Him and his wife uh, live, anyways, beautiful what's happened in their lives. And he told me on the last day, he said, Scott, I need to thank you because every time you led worship, I I saw an angel towering behind you and i knew god was real i didn't know what to do with that (laughs) and john in his past had had demonic experiences encountered spiritual realities that had terrified him and he didn't know what to do with what was happening but in those moments of us singing together the praises of god he found himself flooded with the peace of the presence of a god who was for him When you hear a story of someone having a dramatic vision, we don't know what to do with it. I don't know what to do with it. But 20 years later, my friend John is a follower of Jesus because of how God met him in that moment of a vision of an angel in worship. In case you think I'm wildly charismatic, I am so not. (laughs) Or that my church is. Jesse knows. We're not. This is Edwards. This is God's work at times. Uh, Fifth, 
that a work is spread through the means of example. In other words, someone observes another greatly affected and then is themselves greatly affected. This itself is no evidence either way. As Edward explains, for we know that it is God's manner to make use of means in carrying on his work in the world. This is an interesting one because I'm sure all of us who are maybe more skeptical by nature have at times observed or heard a story and thought, well, they're just mimicking, they're mimicking them. Their friends did it, whatever. But let it be said, God rarely works apart from means. God usually works through the influence of another. That is part of how the God we encounter in the Bible works through people, through touch, through words that are shared, through example, through the inspiration of another. That a work is spread through the means of example is itself no evidence. Six, the subjects of a work are sinful people is no evidence. Again, I so appreciate that he says it. I'm sure there's moments where some of us who are more skeptical by nature think, well, I don't even know if I trust them. I mean, they're the local whatever, right? Edwards in his own story describes, when he's just telling narrative, he describes the conversion of some of the most notorious company keepers in town. I don't really know what he means by this, but he means something very <laughs> negative, particularly about young people, the young people who are company keepers after hours, coming, experiencing these things and coming to a living faith in Jesus. And Edwards would say, is not the very purpose of God's work to make holy those who were formerly unholy. Mm -hmm. So the fact that this is being experienced by sinful people is in itself no evidence. Seventh, in these last three, I just want to mention, Edwards seems particularly concerned to speak to those who, because of one thing, deny everything. Edward's seventh negative sign is that where some signs of human foolishness or demonic activity are evident, this does not prove that the entirety of the work is not of God. The presence of Judas in the Twelve doesn't nullify God's choosing of the Twelve work among them. I'm sure we could give many examples to that. Eighth, if some subjects later fall away, is no evidence that the work in general is not of God. Edward says that there are some counterfeits is no argument that nothing is true. That could be, you could pin cushion that one, Clark, or put that out on the sign that you don't have. <laughs> that some are counterfeits. This is maybe a word in our deconstruction world of hearing the stories of failed Christians. That there are some counterfeits is no argument that nothing is true or that all is false. Such things are always expected in times of reformation. He says, where the spirit of God is at work, the devil will seek to show up and be at work. But the devil, this is, I'm quoting him, the devil sowing tares is no proof that a true work of the spirit is not gloriously carried on. Mm -hmm. Lastly, it is no evidence that the work, that a work is uh, the result of passionate preaching with ministers emphasizing the terror of God's judgment. Considering the nature of God's holiness, God's passions, God's hatred of idolatry and injustice, it is only appropriate for Christians who are caught by that passion to have passion in their communication, whether as a friend 
in conversation or a preacher from a music stand. With these nine negative signs, Edward sought to clarify those things which often make us dismiss a particular work as not of God, but which in and of themselves are actually non-conclusive signs. Again, the emphasis is not on the experience, but the fruit of it. So let me offer just a few quick conclusions and I'm done. I have no idea where we're at time-wise here, Clark. How are we doing? Great. Have I lost y'all? No. Um, Edward's positive signs and negative signs seek to clarify that the phenomena themselves are not sufficient indicators of the nature of the work. He says, it is not the degree of religious affections, but the nature of them that is chiefly to be looked at. I love this. He says, some have had great raptures of joy, have been extraordinarily filled, have had their bodies overcome and have manifested far less of a temper of Christians in their conduct since than others who have been still and who have had no great outward sign. But then again, there are many others who have had extraordinary joys and emotions of mind with frequent great effects upon their bodies that now behave themselves as humble, amiable, eminent Christians. And for him, he distills it down to what you need in a moment like this is you need to know the rules, which is the positive negative signs. And you need to know the facts. The facts being the subsequent life of the individual. And in regard to determining the facts, Edwards was not so much interested in the personal verbal testimony of the fruit. Not you waking up out of whatever experience it was and saying, oh, this is what happened. But what would be evident in subsequent days and weeks and months. This is actually where John Arnott, the pastor of the Toronto Blessing, and Edwards had different rules of discernment. Edward uh, Arnott was quick to say, hey, what happened to you? What did it mean to you? Edwards would say, I don't think you're the person who can assess that right now. Let's walk with you for the next few weeks, next mm -hmm. few months, and see where this is going. Mm -hmm. For Edwards, the lasting fruit of a transformed life is ultimately the only real evidence of, the, of God's work. With this, I think in times of renewal and revival, we need to embrace the counsel of 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19 and 22, as our aim and commitment to not quench the spirit, to test everything, and to hold on to what is good. Where there is positive evidence of the true work of the spirit, we should be careful to con not condemn, denounce, or dismiss the means that God is choosing to use. Not that we should categorically embrace certain experiences as always being from God, but simply that in the present, we thank God for working however he has chosen to do his work. And with that, yeah, I think we need to affirm the variety of ways that the spirit works in our lives and in that of others and maybe even in different seasons of our lives. Clearly, the goal of the Holy Spirit's work is not to make us shake or cry or rob us of bodily strength, but to lead us to Jesus, to minister to us on behalf of Jesus, to form in us the life of Jesus. And to this end, God at times chooses to work in us in different ways. I always think, when I think about this, I always think of my college roommate, Mark Henshaw. Props to Mark Henshaw. Um, Back in college and the years following it, 
Mark was someone whose life with God was so different to mine. Every time I met with him, he had another story, crazy story of crazy experiences with God. Um, compared to my walk with Jesus, you'd think I wasn't a Christian. Like if you just listen to these stories, he always had these experiences that were surprising and undeniable and dramatic experiential life with God. Whereas I had re read a lot of books since then and I'd prayed and I'd been faithful and I'd been growing, but a much less, much more quiet. Um, Wholehearted, yes, but not experiential in that way. Less charismatic, just a persistent pursuit and experience of Jesus with what God had given me. And yet every time I reconnect with Mark, still to this day, I discover again, we discover again and celebrate that through different means, the same spirit is mm -hmm. leading us on the same path, forming yeah. us in the image of the same Jesus. And I walk away thanking God at the mystery that he chooses to work towards the same goal in different ways in us. And with that, I think lastly, I'll just say, I think listening to all this, studying it, makes me want to pray. And it makes me want to seek whatever experience God gives me, whether it's a quiet, which is my more normal, or it's passion and surprising, that we would seek to be people who are passionate about what the Spirit is passionate about. Then the face of the mystery of the Spirit's work in ways, we would continually remind ourselves and one another that the Spirit is seeking to lead us to Jesus, to lead us in the way of Jesus, to make us more like Jesus. Mm -hmm. And in that, He is glorified. Come, Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's that's my bit. <laughs> How do you want to navigate? <laughs> Uh, this is a time where we can have open discussion, open questions to you, uh, to Scott, um, or maybe even to one another. Yeah. Uh, but I'm just going to uh, to strike when the iron's hot, uh, and maybe give some time for people. Sometimes it needs a little process. I really appreciate your talk. Uh, you know, laying out these positive and negative signs, making a 18th century philosopher preacher very um interesting and relevant um and <clears throat> but my question is is that you were differentiating between what is of the spirit and what is of the devil mm. and that's a very important question or and just of a inner emotional or inner emotional well mm. that that brings me to that point there's a a man his name is darren brown he was a magician in england mm. His father was a vineyard pastor. He had lots of charismatic experiences growing up, uh, but it burned him. Mm. And so he became a skeptic. And in fact, uh, it set him on his mission to prove that Christianity is false. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of his magic, he would point back to his experiences in the vineyard. Mm -hmm. And that he considers uh magic and religion to have the same sort mm. the trick of hand the sleight of hand mm. mass hallucination mm. and he does tremendously interesting things uh, uh for example i'll just give you a quick example that he had uh two advertising people coming in and and he called them on the pretense that he was inviting 
them to help him with this ad campaign. And they thought he was a business guy. And he said, I want you to come up with uh, a promo for this toilet paper. And 30 minutes, I, I want, want to see it. And so they do they do the mock-up and everything. There's no cameras or anything. And then he goes in. And before he looks at it, he goes, is your promo this? And he guesses exactly what. And they're shocked that he knows exactly what they're going to say. Uh, well, what he did is he then revealed that he's a magician and that all along the way in their limb, the, the car that picked them up, mm -hmm. that they had little signals. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the children walking across the street on their backpack had a picture of something. Mm -hmm. The sign said something. They were like, you know, false construction delays and detours. Mm -hmm. And basically he manipulated them to have that vision, mm -hmm. to have that promotion. And it's his way of saying, well, I think that this is just the work of mass hallucination, mm. a psychological trick on a mass scale. Mm. So my question is, what do you think? Thanks. So such an easy <laughs> starting point. Guys, sorry, sorry. Yeah, I shouldn't let Clark start. <laughs> uh, it's interesting, I because I listen, I did a few days ago listen to this talk from 50 years ago by Martin Lloyd-Jones um, speaking on on the Welsh revivals um, that had just been happening or happening in the previous half century. And he and Martin Lloyd-Jones himself was a trained doctor, had worked as a doctor for many years before he'd become a pastor. And so his his sermon was really a lecture. It was there wasn't a lot of uh, <laughs> biblical exposition preaching as much. But he was actually responding to the skeptics in his day who were saying, mm. oh, this is hysteria. This is all those sorts of claims. And his argument was what we're just talking about here. Uh, Edwards is not describing something that's been manufactured. It is this is fundamentally a surprising. I mean, literally. The, the, the book that accounts the primary stories of this is called the, A Narrative of Surprising Conversions. This is out of nowhere. This is unexpected. This is not someone anyone in his community was seeking to drum up. It wasn't conditioning. It wasn't conditioning. Also, it was across the whole spectrum of the community. Young, old, rich, poor, men, women, people of certain leanings, people of other leanings. And so when we're talking about this specific context, I'm sure there are environments where it is manipulated. I've been in settings where things were manipulated. I am by nature skeptical. That's why I need this. And also why I was so thrown by it when I started experiencing it uh, as a 21-year-old in the life of my church. It was outside of it was outside of what any of us were asking for, we thought. Um, so I'm sure there are environments where it is manipulation. Absolutely. And I'm sure we got stories we could tell. I, I've been there. But I think in specific to what I'm addressing here, he's talking about places where seemingly this is not something that is precipitated by the work, the pursuit of the individual. It seems to be the pursuit of God breaking in and thwarting the endeavors of indiv individuals into a path they were not pursuing. Thank you. And just so you know, I see that yeah. another question, but oh, thank Jonathan you. Edwards was per um apparently not a very dynamic preacher. Yeah, yeah, right. So it was a very monotone. Yeah, when people, preacher. yeah, tell the stories of him preaching, I mean, 
this is the, not someone who would personally inspire anyone to engagement. <laughs> it was a surprise that people sat under his leadership for years. Yeah. Yes. A question. Yes, I was just going to say, it doesn't that come under the counterfeit argument? Just because you have counterfeit doesn't mean that the real isn't there. Yeah. And also the biblical example of Moses and the Egyptian magicians. Right. They were literal magicians. Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Do we have um, reports of this whole phenomenon from any other source other than the man who was Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why I made the reference to that even secular historians refer to the Great Awakening. Mm -hmm. It's very, the Great Awakening specifically, but the, um, the Welsh revival. I mean, there's many of these experiences that are very well documented far beyond mm -hmm. just this individual. Okay. Um, I, so yeah, so yeah, there's lot. There is lots of sources. I don't know if I'm an American, but you learn about the first Great Awakening and the second Great Awakening mm -hmm. in secular public school, mm -hmm. like as a historical event. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Why not? Yeah, I pastored in Saskatoon for a few years uh, in Heartland of Canada. And I arrived at this church and we had a, a fellow on our, our staff um, who, senior man, uh, Wally, who was our local quasi-retired evangelist. He'd been on staff with the church for years and he was so eager to hand me pieces of paper from the local, the local Saskatoon papers from the 50s telling the stories of a revival that swept, that started, actually swept across the whole country, but started in, in Saskatoon. And people who would be walking across one of the bridges um, in the midst of a broken marriage, in the midst of addiction, who would look across the way and see a church and in a way they never thought before in their lives they would want to walking in and coming awake to God and and revival that swept across the city. And the stories are well accounted in public papers about how people's practice in the city, businesses, employees would come and return um, tools that they had stolen from their employers as they felt God changing their hearts and yeah so yeah it's a fascinating field of study that's for sure yeah others yes Scott were you in Victoria here in the mid-90s I wasn't I was away and Lambrick my own church has some history of division around some charismatic things yeah, in our city too yes here that was connected with the Toronto blessing yeah I uh, was involved in the charismatic church for seven years some of it was vineyard some other and i've seen all these things and i believe it started out as a move of god there was a lot of people their hearts were changed delivered mm. from things and then all this crazy stuff started happening and but that wasn't of god yeah. um, the whole thing after seven years it just died yeah there was nothing left and uh, I left that church. I didn't go to church for a number of years. And I researched it. Started looking. And, oh, what they were doing, that wasn't in scripture. That mm. wasn't in the Bible. Mm. And you mentioned John Wimber. He came out of Chuck Smith's church in California in the 60s. Yep. Um, Calvary Chapel. Calvary Chapel. Yep. And he wanted, he, there wasn't enough excitement for him. So he wanted to start the vineyard. Mm. And the one good thing about the vineyard, they had really good music at that time i still got a bunch of their old stuff but um john wimmer said to, or uh, chuck smith said to him if you when you leave or if you leave you will always be chasing the spirit and mm. this guy ran around the world mm. 
doing that and it just all kind of died there's no vineyard church in victoria anymore mm. I, I don't know if there's any around in dc maybe up in Kelowna. yeah there are but yeah but um it's a movement there were a lot of counterfeit yeah things and the men's pride got involved yeah they got oh well look what's happened look what god's doing with us and it just died mm -hmm. and it was tragic mm. and a lot of people got hurt and it left a very bad taste yeah, in my mouth. For sure. And I'm very sensitive to that stuff. Yeah. yeah. And I talked to my pastor, and you know, things are really growing. This was uh in the midst of the pandemic, and we talked about it a lot. And I was concerned that this stuff would start happening again. And I said to him, mm. if people start doing this, is it okay if I go talk to them? And if they don't listen, can I take them out? Because mm. if that starts happening in our church, mm. where my pastor spends many hours listening to God prepare his sermon, he has the authority to deliver that to the mm. church. Someone comes in to disrupt it, that's not a God. Mm. And I don't want to see him there. And mm. I would physically take him out if I had the opportunity. Mm. So this stuff, we'll probably see it again. It'll come around. So be aware of it, and not so much all these manifestations, but I think the, the next true move of God will be in the sign gifts, where we're going to see God like healing people, things like this, that are recorded in Scripture. Mm. Those are the things we're supposed to be doing, mm. and we will see that, mm. and we will know when that's real or not. So. I, I think I'm supposed to summarize for here, uh, and I don't know if I can get, catch all that, but you talked about, about the 90s and the charismatic movement that came here, largely from the Vineyard and the Toronto Blessing, yeah. um, and it having its day, and then also passing, and wounds from it that left for many. And I I wholeheartedly, there's so much of what you said there that I resonate yeah. with, and I, I think it's worth saying that um, John Wimber, uh, as the leader for his lifetime of the vineyard movement. Um, I, um, there was a time where John and the, vi the vineyard and the Toronto blessing actually parted ways. Did the story didn't always, didn't actually get out uh, to everyone, but at a certain point, the Toronto blessing, the leadership of the Toronto blessing, John Wimber and the vineyard movement felt that they actually became more focused on the phenomena than on Jesus. And yeah, and it became about, trying to get an experience rather than encountering Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so they actually parted ways. The vineyard asked, said, if you're, if you're going to make this your whole thing, then we're going to part ways. And I, I appreciate that about. But one thing I, I did notice people with addictive personalities mm -hmm. were really drawn to this because it was feeding something in them. Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, what we're seeing now are people coming in like with a lot of uh, reformed drug addicts. Mm -hmm met the Lord, their lives are totally changed. Mm. And that's the proof. That's the proof. Absolutely. Which is exactly what Jonathan Edwards is saying for. He he was just he watching in his day the experience and the fruitfulness made him cautious to not make any sort of complete judgment on a particular experience, but to look past it always to where is there evidence of Jesus in this? Is there evidence of the fruit of the spirit in people's lives? Is there evidence of real repentance, conversion, but not to make that instantly cut us off to the means that God uses, but to not allow ourselves to become obsessed with the means. Absolutely. I'm with you. Yeah. Jesse. Um, 
So <clears throat> I grew up basically from people that came from the Toronto Blessing, and that was my experience. And it's really interesting. All my siblings have basically gone away from that, not quite, but like gone away from church because they were hurt. But for some, some reason, I was not hurt. But like I was in it where people were trying to push me over yeah. and like fall down in the name of Jesus. And I was like, I am not falling down unless it's actually God. And I was like, I don't care if I'm the only one standing that runs around me going down. I'm not gonna just fall over because they're pushing me. Thank you very much. But I like I was kind of fine with that because I'm like, well, obviously God's not in me right now, and I can know that and just know that like. Well, I do know that because you prayed from over here and all these people fell down with their hand like way far away from them, that was God. But you doing this is not God. And so I kind of just was like, I don't know, I was just kind of assessing what was God yeah. and what wasn't. There was some good experiences like the teaching and uh, different people, but I was kind of on the periphery of all the, the weird stuff. Mm. I was there and you know, I prayed for people and they'd fall over and this is weird. Like, I don't, so anyway, mm -hmm. but I think it's important. I think what would be lost in all of the experience is the teachings I got taught mm -hmm. that like, if if you're feeling comfortable and this isn't safe to you, that like, if that's not your feeling like God is there, it's probably not something you don't have to accept just because they're the pastor or the leader that they have. And I think think those that have studied revival around the world, I've heard it said that in places where revival came and went and the impact was not known, as opposed to places where revival came and went and fruitfulness continued, often the difference was a continued emphasis on the proclamation of God's word uh, in and beyond the experiences not as a displacement of, but as the center point of what would guide us forward as people who want to learn from Jesus, be shaped by him. Um, and obviously I'm a preacher. That's my great passion too. So others. Yes. So Jonathan Edwards' wife, Sarah, like yeah. 17 days. Yes. Does he talk about what happened in her life? Like, do we have insights into what happened there? Did he apply the rules to his wife mm. and what came out of it? Mm. I, uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, question was asked regarding Edward's wife, Sarah, and her experience of an intimate relationship with the carpet for 17 days. Um, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I, I wish I knew uh, where that comes from specifically. Um, uh, but I don't know whether there is statements from him. I mean, she also did in the historical records, because Edward's, you know, is, went on to be considered the greatest theologian of that century in America. So, so much of his preaching, writing correspondence with others has been archived and kept and there's books everywhere. And so some of Sarah's letters are also included and kept as historical documents, but I'm not sure specifically of his application to her. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yes, I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Others? Any other questions? Yeah. I'm like half putting up my hand because I'm still like processing my hand. Uh, um I mean I grew up in I grew up in a charismatic church as well in the revival in the 90s. So I totally relate to what you're saying. And I think I definitely, there's definitely hurt there for me. 
um, because I felt like it created a real spiritual hierarchy and mm. I didn't have those experiences and I felt like oh, you're you're less if you don't have those and that and that like something was broken about me that I couldn't experience those things. So it took me a long time to feel like I could see the way that like you were talking about the different ways that the Holy Spirit shows up mm -hmm. and that it wasn't like God wasn't <laughs> in my life or you know speaking to me or whatever and, and you know the has been a helpful part of that for me but I don't but I really appreciate your lecture because I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater you know and to say like just because it looks different in someone else's life I'm assuming to this other extreme that can never be anything that's like just like you know? mm -hmm. um but I guess so I guess my my question is kind of like maybe this is like a weird question but because i think there's still something there's part of me that still longs for that mm -hmm. like that more experiential faith and like i felt like your examples were kind of people who are like oh i i don't like i don't want that <laughs> but there are people like me and i've talked to lots of them at Libri and other places who like would really like to have more experiential stuff in their faith but for whatever reason it seems like that's not something that mm -hmm. A way that God is, you know, engaging with them. So, like, what I'm curious what mm. you would say to, to someone like that. Let me try to recap what you just said there, Liz. Uh, uh, having grown up in a charismatic environment, feeling that the downside of that being creating off, often a spiritual hierarchy related to what your experience was or not experience. Um, but with that kind of a lingering sense of, I do want to experience God more. I, I in an authentic way and and as opposed to just those who are skeptical saying no who all of a sudden found themselves in the experience i mean you're describing me uh, we have the same constitution in that regard um and I, I i'm i'm married and my wife grew up pentecostal and so we come from two different ends of this she grew up with with all the hierarchies and feeling like if she couldn't speak in tongues, she didn't know if God was in the room. And I just felt like, well, the Bible tells me God is in the room because he says he's here and he's with me and he's in me. So I don't need to, I don't need to experience something to know he's here. But I also would be in experiences, times of worship or prayer with others where someone would say, oh, I just really feel like God has just really shown up. And I kind of was jealous. I felt like I, I wish I knew that God was uniquely present. I, I trust he was here, but there are times where God is uniquely, you know, is in a special way more so somehow. And um, so I resonate with that a lot. I think for me, part of my own journey has been coming to understand and validate and celebrate all the ordinary expressions of the Spirit's work and not denigrate them. Because mm -hmm. ultimately, what, as I've said again and again, the Spirit comes to lead us to Jesus, to minister to us on behalf of Jesus, to make form us in the image of, of Jesus. Every time I am drawn to God in repentance, every time I am drawn to God in worship, every time I sense that God is speaking to me in the morning through my experience of Lectio Divina with a passage of scripture, I'm experiencing the spirit. And I needed to discover that and start reclaiming that and living in that and letting that fuel while I also still all the time say, oh, come Holy Spirit and let me know you more. Um, and I, man, even preparing to give this lecture again i just find myself saying oh god i i want to know you more i want to i want to be alive with your heart and your love and your grace and more than is mustered in me right now and so i yeah that's i'm in that tension with you but also i think there is something that's helped me and i've i've sat with many friends you know as i said at the beginning who 
who quickly say, you know, if I ask you, tell me about your experience of the Father. Tell me experience of the of the Son. Tell me about your experience of the Spirit. How many people will say, I don't know if I've ever experienced the Spirit, and yet that is not the truth. We just don't see clearly that our experience of the Father is by the Spirit. Our experience of Jesus is by the Spirit. We are not a Spirit-bereft people. There is no such thing as a Christian who is bereft of the Spirit. We just don't have eyes to see His work. And that, that to me has been a real comfort to my soul, but it's also made me long for more. So thank you, Scott. And I feel like too, I don't know your name, but I just like Jesse. Yeah, Jesse. Um, yeah, like your point about like I was it you saying that point about teaching? Like that I, I feel like what I didn't grow up with was really very much like theological grounding and understanding that like the Holy Spirit isn't only like right. falling over or speaking right. in tongues. And and so that that sort of awareness of like even just like you know spiritual gifts like people have all different lists but but that you know like the gift of hospitality or things like that or mm -hmm. like that's that can also be absolutely it's working you and so so i think it's it's helpful when these things happen like i honestly i do actually pray for revival in our city you know so i'm not like opposed to revival mm -hmm. but that there's also like this a groundedness to that mm -hmm. to be rooted in theology yeah and at the center of that too is that affirmation of the scripture itself is the text that the spirit has inspired and still inspires today as we read it and we are not choosing spirit or word like when people put those up as we're a church of word and spirit the word is the means of the spirit's work like they're not separate the spirit inspires scripture and breathes through it today i think there might be a question online okay. uh, gary did you have a question gary's question so what brought the, the quote, great awakening to an end? Oh, uh, you know, I'm not enough of a scholar of the great awakening to know that. I honestly, I, I stu I've studied Edwards for the sake of discernment in the environments I was in. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, I, all revivals that history talks about have a beginning and an end and the spirit is still at work, obviously. And, um, and it, but there are unique times and places where God chooses to to be at work, and we need to be thankful for it and be discerning in it as well. But but I will say it's interesting. Your your, your questions making me think about. I mentioned about my church in Saskatoon that I was with that had experienced revival, and it was a revival that swept the city, huge impact. A revival that swept across the country. My grandfather was an, an alliance pastor at the time in Ontario. And my grandma, after my grandfather passed away and I was old enough to care, I would ask my grandma stories about my grandfather's ministry. And my grandma would talk about when the revival uh, that began in Saskatoon and swept across the country swept to Ontario. And my grandfather's ministry was never the same after that. The fruitfulness of my grandfather's ministry went up. More people came to faith. In the latter chapter of his ministry, uh, he had a fruit, his fruitfulness grew. I can't make sense of that. And in the midst of it, in Saskatoon, at the church that I had been at, served at, where this revival had started, I sorry, I apologize for giving quotes. It was an authentic work of God, but it actually, in the long run, bore both good fruit and bad fruit because people in the church in the, in the months and years following that revival waning, people kept praying for revival 
instead of dealing with reconciliation in their broken relationships. People focused on the experience as opposed to the invitation of Jesus. They said, oh, we just need revival to come again, as opposed to going and asking forgiveness of the person in their small group that they don't want to meet with anymore and reconcile their marriage. And so at times, same thing with, it could be the Great Awakening, but definitely with the Toronto Blessing, place where the experience became too much of the focus and the invitation of Jesus that the spirit is calling us to is follow me, not seek an experience. I think Dan has a response to that. Yeah. You know, Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 7, you make the commands of God void by the traditions of men. Mm-hmm. The Bible goes along, it becomes this tradition that we do things this way now, mm-hmm. and it makes God's command void, and it just dies. Mm-hmm. And we do it all the time. We have these pet beliefs that we it's not in scripture, but we all believe it. Mm. And it it denies the power of God in our lives. Mm. And it's like you said, uh, you follow the commands. If you got something against your brother, you go and, and make right with him. Mm-hmm. You don't hope for another revival. That's just contrary to what God's word says. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. the traditions of men against God's command, what mm. are we what are we standing for? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you so, hear that, Gary? Yeah, I, I, I'm not totally satisfied with that. I mean, um, at some point, did the spirit depart? Why? I think he's jumping back to the question he'd asked more explicitly about, about revivals coming and going. Yeah. I, I mean, if God is a personal being, which he is, Jesus shows up in towns and then he goes other places. I understand Scripture teaches us that the Spirit is with us everywhere. God is with us everywhere. And yet Jesus in his incarnation at times was specifically in this place and other places. Yes, at Pentecost, the Spirit is given to every follower of Jesus. We always live in the presence of God. That is a Christian conviction. So Scripture teaches us. But I think I think there's room to recognize there, there are times just Pentecost is a moment where God uniquely chose to be present in a particular place. Um, and to be known there, that is not a perpetuated experience. Um, and so I think, I, I feel like there's room to expect that God, I'm, I pray for a unique turning of the heart of many of our friends and neighbors and ourselves. And there are times where we uniquely experience God beyond the normal. And could we not believe that God could choose to uniquely do something in the midst of a community for a time and thank God for it, even when it wanes? But also part of that withdrawing is a part of the need for growth and discipleship and not clinging to an experience. Revivals reveal truth about different aspects of God. Hmm. The early church up until Augustine was probably going through those dark ages till Luther came and oh, we are saved by grace through faith. That was a big revelation. Everybody yeah, this is it. And then the next revival comes on, another aspect. Mm. And the last one we went through was the prophetic uh, prophecy and stuff. We learned a bit about that. It's one of the truths of God. Mm. We mess it all up, but it's there. We, we can learn from it. So the next thing, I think it's all combined, all the fivefold ministries all at once. We're gonna, we know, and it will come to pass. Mm. So revivals just re- reveal a truth about God. Mm. Absolutely. That's what God is after.
Yeah. We have a question. I know yeah. Janice has, uh, but there's a question on the chat. Uh, there's the fruit uh, by Akindulu Dada. There's the fruit of the works being done and also the fruit in the life of the person through whom God is doing the works. So first, can there be a disconnect between the two? Mm. That is, we can see the fruit of the works, but not in the life. Mm. And secondly, how do we as believers handle this situation? Well, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, John White, um, I don't know if you're familiar. Uh, John White was um, a medical doctor, psychologist as well, psychiatrist, uh, and um, who um, uh, pastored in Western Canada for much of his uh, life. And he wrote a really interesting book called When the Spirit Comes in Power. It's a title that's been used for lots of books. But this book in particular is about this issue, how God at times, and I don't understand this, and I think John's trying to acknowledge this, that God at times uses people for his purposes, even when they themselves are not completely devoted to his purposes. So God, and thank God he does. <laughs> but that there are times where there are individuals that a pastor, an evangelist, whose life, and I think there's also great damage that comes out of this as well, but that God does choose at times to use people in powerful ways for good ends. And the caution that John White in this book was trying to say is that we need to be very careful that we don't automatically equate anointing with godliness. Ideally, that's what God is after. And we should call that and expect that of our leaders. But we should be uh, cautious to automatically expect that if someone is up front <laughs> and bearing a ton of fruit, that they are by necessity deeply godly. Um, we need to be more discerning of that. So I, I, I don't know your question of, well, what do we do with that? That's a hard one. Um, uh, but I think that is something that can be borne out in many communities. Um, I mean, it happens nowadays. We uh, we all have stories that we're hearing too often of fallen pastors or ministry leaders. And with it comes the deconstruction, the doubt of those who were benefited by their ministry, wondering if all of it is to no consequence or was it all lies? Was it all deceptive? Was it all a foil? And I can't answer that. But also, there is something to be said that God does at times. God uses broken people. And sometimes, thank God, he does. <laughs> that there's places where that is maybe the option available. And we're thankful that God uses broken people. So, yeah, more could be said. So, thank you. Great talk. Um, the discernment that you brought up by Edwards of, of saying the discernment is actually the fruit which is really a good way of looking at it. Um, but I wonder if we are not also supposed to discern in the moment. Mm. And that's almost what Jesse was saying in her experience. Mm -hmm. and I, that's my belief that not it's, it's not only in the moment, it is also, right. it's not one or the other. Right. But I don't know if yeah, I, 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 for me, part of getting into this study initially was what was happening in my own church. I was studying uh, uh, at Regent College uh, a class with Bruce Heimarsh, a church historian, on the historical roots of the evangelical movement. At the very same time, the Toronto Blessing was happening, and I used it as an opportunity to study Edwards and Arnott and their their rules of discernment. And because I'm with you, I think there is something. Obviously, we're always to be discerning. We're all. I mean, that's what Scripture tells us to test the spirits. 
Um, but Edwards, having watched the long journey of it, watched over years and a decade of these two revivals that came and went and all the reactions, was just, he, he, he was concerned that our gut reaction in the moment might at, at times cause us to denounce something that in the long haul God is using or to make blanket statements about the whole. Um, I, I'm with you. We need discernment. And that's that's what was going on for me as well. Um, but we hold it loosely, maybe, is what that is. Um, also recognizing that those that we're in, engaged with, maybe someone's personal experience, that they don't always, we don't always have the right grid to assess our own experience. Um, we Maybe someone doesn't actually know what the Father is like. <laughs> or what Jesus is like. And so their ability to say, oh, that was Jesus is rooted in a vision of Jesus that isn't actually him. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, Edwards is just cautious. <laughs> uh, at best, let's think long view. Um, but let's also not be too quick to denounce something that God might be working through. There's tension yeah. there. Yeah. Yes, 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 is he good? Mm. The answer was yes, he's good, but he's not safe. Mm-hmm. I don't think right. that's yeah. sort of summarizing mm-hmm. a bit much. Absolutely. Yeah. Things that could happen. But I, I think like I would say in my experience through some of this listening to Edwards and Arnott and others and just studying revivals at times, I, I think there's probably some basic metrics we do bring into the moment. There could be some experiences that somebody could be claiming or acting out that feel deeply contrary to the character of God. Um, you know, or someone feels like I'm being inspired by the spirit to a violent action. No, like this is not what the spirit would do, right? So I think we do bring with us discernment criteria into the into the moment um, while also recognizing sometimes God is surprising in his ways. And thank God he is. Yes. I can do really want to just follow up. Yeah. Uh, she or he asked, is there a way we can strengthen or support people who are being used? Oh, being like used of God in these ways. I would think that's what, is that what you're saying? Uh, She, yes. Yes. Okay. Well, I think, I mean, when, honestly, whenever I, I'm a reader, I'm a learner, I teach. So I always have to read and learn from others. And I always pray for the authors. Like I, every time I finish a book by someone or as I read a book, a Christian teacher, I say, I say to God, thank you, God, for this person. Keep them holy. (laughs) God, like work in them. You speak these truths back into their soul. Keep them on their knees for the sake of your glory and for the sake of the church. Don't let, you know, their weak will, just like mine to lead them down a path. So I, I think intercession is important. I think in the life of a church, seeking to as a congregant as a member of the body of christ to encourage healthy accountability structures within the life of a church matters not abandoning people on platforms really matters pastors need to be known not they don't need everybody to be their confessor but they need a few people to be their confessor and um but yeah whether that's authors or as people on platforms or it's whatever we need to Pray for them like we pray for ourselves. So, yeah. Thanks for your question. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. Um, 
I really appreciate your talk. Thank you very much. Um, that was helpful. I have a very dear friend. Um, she's a teacher to my children for a few years uh, before they moved a little further away, and they're a dear family. Um, and there are certain things that um, have come up over the years. We've been friends with them in conversation that are just like her background is so different from mine mm. culturally, just completely different. Um, and I definitely identify a lot with what you and what Liz were saying in terms of like where you're coming from. And like, I, you know, love to worship the Lord, love the outpouring of the spirit, but some of those more like kind of costly leaning things are unfamiliar to me. Um, and so I wouldn't say that it's Pentecostal necessarily, but it's certainly more, um, not just charismatic. She'll talk to me about things that sound weird. <laughs> like she's talking about, you know, the time when the spirit raised one of her kids from the dead mm. and she's, you know, a lot of things like that. And that's been hard for me over the years. But the thing is, I can see the proof. Mm -hmm. Like we love the same Lord. Mm. We love the same word of God. And we have deeper fellowship than most all of my other friends. And so it's so rich to be with her and to pray with her is like from another world. It's so wonderful. So I can't throw that stuff out. I mean, I want to. I want to be like, I love you. Stop being weird. You know? <laughs> but there's no way for me to parse those things out. I know that she has encountered the Lord in ways that are uncomfortable to me hmm. because I haven't seen him in those ways. I've seen him in other ways. Hmm. So my question is like, it sounds like you have at least one friend who's yeah. a similar experience. Yeah. Like, how do you walk through that if they're like, how do you parse out, like, okay, what which of this is just me and my feelings in the moment, but like some things that may be bordering on like, I nah, like how do you walk <laughs> through that <laughs> graciously? Um while loving your friends that you know love the Lord. Yeah. Um there's and you're confident in that, but like there's just something that you're like, oh, this is so uncomfortable. Mm. How can I be like, wow, what a great experience. You know, mm. I wish God would raise one of my kids from the dead. <laughs> it's like, yeah. no, how do you respond yeah. genuinely in those conversations? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Can I, sorry, can I ask like a question of like, so the point of the question is to wonder how to like love, yeah, like how to respond or how to love her? Yeah, we have a really her. genuine friendship and we really do love each other. I feel like when these things come up, I have nothing to say. Mm. Like, I don't want to lie to her and be like, wow, that's so awesome. Right. Because I like, I don't know if that's awesome. Mm. I just... Um, can't you just say that? That's really weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there's something to that. Like, I, I think it's helpful sometimes to say to someone, I have no grid for that, <laughs> but man, like that, that's great. Like if, <laughs> you know, like obviously if, if someone is speaking heresy, if someone's beliefs about Jesus and the spirit are veering off the path of what we know to be God's will and God's ways, I think it's important to say, hey, can we talk about this? Because I'm a little bit uncomfortable with the way you're saying that or describing mm -hmm. that. It seems to be not what God is after. Yeah. But there's also just what is uncomfortable, what is different from our experience. And honestly, if I had a child who lost their life in that moment, I would pray that Jesus would raise them from Absolutely. the dead. And if that is someone's experience, my gosh, thank the Lord for that moment, you know? Um, 
So, but I'm sure there's far more than there's that, right. but I think it's, I think that would be my push is mm-hmm. I think we all need to be, Paul says in Colossians that we are to be, he says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another mm-hmm. through all wisdom songs mm-hmm. from the spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Mm-hmm. I, I love that the Trinitarian exor- exhortation, the spirit, the father and the son are all at work in the life of the church as we coach, encourage, challenge one another. And it's not just the pastor's responsibility or the book. It's mm-hmm. us, right? But also sometimes we just are wired differently. And God also works with us within that unique wiring. And thank God he does. Um, but sometimes, yeah, sometimes I, I'm sure I said to Mark, I don't know what to do with what he just said to me, <laughs> but I love that you love Jesus. Let's, <laughs> let's pray, you know? And yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you've been friends with this person a long time. Um, yeah, about five five years. So you know her character, mm-hmm. her true, mm-hmm. great person. Mm-hmm. I would suggest that she's not weird. You're the ones that are weird. <laughs> <laughs> because Jesus said, "You will do these same works as I mm-hmm. do and greater." She's doing them. Mm-hmm. We're not. We're weird. <laughs> Maybe Moses, we're all weird. God said to Moses, mm. or Moses said to God, I know your acts, but I want to know your ways. Mm. And that comes from relationship. Mm. She must have a wonderful relationship with God. So mm. I'd be talking to her about that and mm. pressing in. Hey, mm. tell me about this. Got something going on there. She's mm. the mm. a wise woman. Mm. Yeah, that's I cool. think that you're the person that also kind of experienced a lot, but sometimes I've had to learn how to talk to people about it. Mm-hmm. So people, I'm like, it's mutual. I did that. And then they're like, and the person's really finished. So it's kind of like, who am I talking to? And then what? Yeah. And I would say, as your friend and pastor, I've watched that in our church because you came in way more charismatic in your experience and your language. And it took some of our community time to to look and see the beauty of Jesus alive in you, and also you to find new language for describing your experience, so that you people would meet you'd meet with people together. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. So she might just you know, yeah. you just ask her, "What can you explain that in a different way?" Mm-hmm. Or like, "Tell me more." Mm-hmm. She might be able to kind of explain mm-hmm. it without the like. Yeah, no, that's really beautiful too because there's a, a the unity that we're called to is not the unity of exactly like same mindedness. It's this unity of of worshiping the same Savior mm-hmm. and and being before the foot of the cross together. Um, and it's amazing that the Lord chooses to show manifest Himself to us in these different ways. And so it's it's admirable, I think, that you would notice that. And instead of looking down on someone else for diminishing or not recognizing your experience would be willing to talk to them in a way that's more helpful mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. one i just say we have 10 minutes are you still okay sure great you got my water yes um, I think this is what some people find the hardest i need some water Labrie. i wanted to say that there's been many people who have come to Labrie uh from different traditions eastern orthodox catholic and variety of Protestants, and of course, many skeptics and non-believers and stuff. But what I found is that to me, as you pointed out earlier, it doesn't matter if they're charismatic, Orthodox, Catholic, or Protestant. If I know that there's a kinship of the spirit, Mm -hmm. it becomes clear in the 
the integrity of the person and the character of the person and how they talk. Mm -hmm. I do become skeptical when people start looking to the experience to justify their faith mm -hmm. and that they're, they're wanting to almost speak of the experience in order to validate their own faith. And when I see someone so focused on that, then I think it's very doubtful. Mm -hmm. uh, even if they're a kind person, I think, okay, maybe they're too focused on this because it's a lot easier to want to fall down on the ground before the presence of God mm -hmm. than to pick up their cross and follow him in the day to day, mm -hmm. being kind, loving their enemies, mm -hmm. welcoming the stranger. Uh, because those are the acts of the spirit. Mm. So, uh, so to me, that is one of the cautions of, uh, yes, it's a blessing. Just like family is a blessing from God, but don't make that your idol. You can make idols of good things. Mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I'm glad that you've had these good experiences, but where's the day-to-day -day focus mm -hmm. of what God is doing in your midst and in you for the world? Mm -hmm. I, I think I just added that I think we need to bring that into our our own discernment as we seek out mentors in our life and as we elevate people into leadership in the life of the church community that we our first concern uh, should not be giftedness giftedness matters but if character is not there gifts are not gifts they're a curse mm -hmm. and and I have I remember early early years of my pastoral life being leading a young church plant and someone shows up who's a youth pastor somewhere else and they're capable leader and too quickly said oh yeah why don't you lead a small group and then four months later it's like oh my gosh that was the dumbest thing I ever could have done because his character did not hold his gifts mm -hmm. and in time that meant that his leadership became a problem in the mm -hmm. community mm -hmm. and the challenge with character is it takes time mm -hmm. to be shown so gifts show up quick oh they're a great leader wow they can really energize a room oh they can unpack that passage really well they can lead people but we need to be slow willing to trust god to give us the right people and be slow mm -hmm. and to look for how people is there are they bearing the fruit of christ's influence in people's lives not just are they good at this or that and do we need that gift on our team mm -hmm. yeah donna we also have to be careful at being, um, being so self-focused on what's happening in our own experiential level and even if we go say a non-charismatic situation like the holy Ghost is there tick 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 that it becomes kind of our experience ourselves we get our, we don't have to focus on god mm -hmm. I have a question that uh, I, I have lots of questions, but I won't <laughs> ask them all. But uh, I know somebody personally who was in a big church in the States and they took a spiritual gifts test online. <laughs> And you know where this is going, maybe. But she had the gift of leadership. So they gave her leadership of a Bible study. And I know this person well. They should not be a leader. They're really great at bringing an event together. Mm -hmm. They should not have been a Bible study leader. Uh, but it does lead me to ask, not just what's the discernment of the gifts and what's the difference differentiation between talents mm. or 
natural giftings and gifts of the spirit in specific ways. Yeah, I mean, it links partly very much to what I was just saying. Right. Um, yeah, for us, I mean, having had to stand in that place of trying to discern elders over the years and people to lead in different ways, I've definitely just come to be convinced that you're always trying to pay attention to what does what is the fruit of this person's influence? Are other people drawn more to seek and follow Jesus because of their, that's what I'm looking for. Not, do you feel good when you teach? Do you think you're good at it? But do people say, through your teaching, I'm hearing Jesus' voice. Mm -hmm. Through your teaching, I want to know Jesus more. Through your leadership in this community, I am drawn more to want to pursue God and grow in his character. That's what I'm looking for. Not are they good at rallying group, because lots of people are good at rallying groups. So I think that's it. It's the evidence of the spirit mm -hmm. in it. That's what makes it a gift. Um, but it has to be in alignment with their own life pursuit. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, God does call young people at times. And, you know, like it's not, I mean, I I became an elder at 21. I became a, a lead pastor the week I turned 26. And I'm thankful people were willing to take risks on me <laughs> as a young person. And yet at the same time, um, yeah, this isn't about age at all because wisdom is not about age. Someone can be wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus at 20. Someone can be wildly stupid when they're 60 and claim to follow Jesus. The same person. The same person. <laughs> That's right. But that, yeah, for me, it's like we have a, we actually have a kind of a guiding document at Lambrick when people walk in the door and I give to people at our newcomer huddle. That says how to become a leader at Lambrick. And part of it is me saying, just because you're a leader somewhere else doesn't mean you're going to instantly be a leader here. Mm -hmm. I say it differently than that to be nice. <laughs> but I, I say that gifts need to be sustained by grace, by character. And character takes time to be proven in community. So lean in with us in the pursuit of Jesus. Serve with us. And what we're hoping is that in time, people will look at you and say to us, Man, I'm so thankful that Clark's a part of us. Like we are, we are a healthier community because of his influence. And when that happens, we'll come and tap your shoulder and say, hey, do you want to lead a Bible study? Because that fruit is evident just as a normal part of your life. Um, and that's where gifts start to be gifts. Great. Yeah. Awesome. I think Scott just headhunted me, Clark. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good. He's doing a good thing here. Are there any last questions? All right, just want to thank you, Scott, so much mm -hmm. for giving your time, mm -hmm. yourself, and leading us through a very uh, tricky, controversial topic. And uh, you you walk the razor's edge, not through compromise, mm -hmm. but through the tension that scriptures give us. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think that that's where the spirit leads us, not too far ahead, not too far behind, but just right in step. Mm -hmm. So thank you for doing that for us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm.